Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, looking at authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalatal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how it is that social media and related digital communication tools, which were once seen as a positive force for advancing freedom and human rights, have rapidly come to be regarded more warily, even as a threat. Today, democratic forces are confronted with anti-liberal powers adept in the collection, manipulation, and projection of information for the purposes of influence and power. Resurgent authoritarian regimes are subverting the global information space by spreading disinformation, surveilling populations, and thwarting the open exchange of ideas. Within democracies, digital tools are generating turbulence that is ever more challenging to come to grips with. To talk us through these painful truths about social media and democracy, we're pleased to welcome to the show Ron Debert, a professor of political science and director of the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, for today's discussion, Social Media and Risks to Digital Freedom. Ron, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Ron, I'd like to kick things off just by asking you if you could walk us through the painful truths that you allude to in your Journal of Democracy article that was published this January. Sure. Thank you. Um, So... Actually, when I, I was asked to write this piece, I had been thinking about these ideas for quite a while, and and really uh, what I wanted to do was synthesize um, a, a lot of conventional wisdom that is emerging out there, and yet a conventional wisdom that people are not really um, willing to confront openly because it is uh, uncomfortable and painful, and that's why I called them painful truths about social media. The first is uh, a pretty basic one. It relates to the nature of the economy of social media, uh, which is basically uh, personal data surveillance. So at the heart of of all social media is a simple transaction in exchange for giving up the uh, freedom and um, the ability to navigate through uh, social media using the technology for free, uh, the, the companies and the machinery behind it essentially monitor everything that you do in order to target advertisements. And this economic model, which is at the heart of social media, is really relentless. It, once it starts, it's difficult to stop, and it, and it uh, accumulates. So you have sensors built on top of sensors in an endless search for acquisition and control. I think most people recognize that. Uh, it's, it's pretty basic, but it's often underestimated how powerful this surveillance uh, machinery can become. So that's the first. Uh, the second is that we like it. We, we consent to it. Um, social media is very popular. Some platforms come and go and people gripe about, you know, maybe Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Um, they're going through a bit of a, a backlash right now. But generally speaking, social media's popularity continues to rise. And um, part of that has to do with the fact that it's very convenient. Um, uh, Part of it has to do with the fact that our our lives are constrained in important ways by social media, so it's very difficult to opt out. But what I outline in the article is a a more insidious uh, mechanism at work, which is that we consent to it, but not necessarily wittingly. And by that I mean most people don't fully appreciate, I think, the way in which social media is explicitly designed as an addiction machine. 
the technology at the heart of it is effectively about drawing people in and keeping them engaged in order to monitor everything that they do. So the um, engineers and the designers of social media platforms spend a lot of money and resources on figuring out ways to draw you in and capture your attention. Um, so this is basically an addiction machine. The last painful truth, um, and I, I find it the most frightening actually, is that social media is enabling authoritarian practices. And I think this um, last painful truth really runs against the grain of the conventional wisdom that people had about the internet and social media and authoritarianism. Um, 20, 30 years ago, you all remember, people were enthusiastic about the technology. Um, there were some exceptions. Shanti, you're one of them. Um, people warning that, well, maybe that conventional wisdom is not quite correct. I think now we have to acknowledge that in a number of ways, social media is actually propelling authoritarian practices. And I go through many of the different mechanisms there. Perhaps we could spend more time talking about that. So just one other question I'd pose at this stage, which is um, there are some observers, of course, who recognize the convenience that one gets from these very uh, attractive uh, digital tools. Um, but I, I'm not certain that most users understand that the, um, the platforms are not neutral and that this notion that somehow it's a, it's a neutral arbiter of what information people receive, at least until very recently, was something that wasn't fully appreciated. So I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about your sense of how the kind of algorithmic logic, as some have described this, works for our listeners who may not be so familiar with that. So um, again, this relates back to how social media is designed in an explicit way to capture and retain people's attention. And so the algorithms are designed to do precisely that, which ends up having several consequences. One is uh, that extreme, radical, prejudiced uh, information tends to rise to the top because that's the most sensational. It's the most spectacular. It's what um, people tend to gravitate towards. And that's simply a, an unfortunate byproduct, really, of human nature. You know, there's a saying about... Uh, people watching a car accident, it's hard to look away. Uh, I think the same could be said about a lot of the content on social media. So the algorithms are, are not neutral at all in that regard. They're designed explicitly to encourage people to, to watch or to um, uh, stay uh, connected to that particular platform. An interesting experiment is to just start with any particular video on YouTube and let the suggested videos roll, you'll find yourself in a pretty dark place very quickly, no matter where you start, however innocuous it is. And that's a good uh, illustration of what we're talking about here and why um, some of the larger social and political consequences of social media are having um, pretty detrimental impacts. So I want to come back to that point about the, the recommendations from social media later, so let me bookmark that. But for now, I wanted to go back to a, a very important point that you make, which is that people want this. It's not a model that is predicated solely upon what is usually termed as some kind of Orwellian landscape or Orwellian control, particularly in authoritarian societies. And I think one of the problems that I have with the Orwellian metaphor is that 
It's, it doesn't fully take into account the fact that this is also demand-driven and that it provides a useful function and some sort of, if not soporific purpose, an entertaining purpose and a, and a function of convenience for people. And particularly, you know, when I look at this through the lens of China and the information environment there, I think of this as the Orwell-Huxley toggle, right? That it's it's not simply Orwell. It's also about providing this sort of something that calms people and keeps them engaged. And actually, there's a professor, Jeff Wasserstrom, who's written a whole essay about this in China. The challenge that I confront, though, is that even if you recognize that this is not solely Orwellian, it leaves you with this problem about how do you address that when so much of what we're talking about is um, I would call it a front door problem, not a back door problem. And you at Citizen Lab, your research team has done so much on back door issues and sort of the ways that data can be exploited through back door means. But this is really something that users are consenting through. It's a front door issue. How do you get at that when that would seem then to put the onus on the consumer to fully understand what they're opting into? Is there a way to address that issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've I've struggled with that myself. uh, one of the things I've puzzled about, and I talk about this in the article, is terms of service. So um, every application that we download comes with a lengthy terms of service. Most people do not read the terms of service. They simply click I accept. Even if you were to read the terms of service, you'd likely need a legal degree to understand it. Um, and even if you had a legal degree and you could understand the terms of service, it would be physically impossible to read all the terms of service on all of the applications that one downloads on their device in a particular day or week. Um, so we're, we're consenting to it, but not entirely wittingly, because we don't even look at the terms we're engaging to when we enter into what is effectively a contractual relationship with a software company. Um, many of the software companies are actually quite explicit about what they do, what they give themselves permission to do. So it's not like they're they're hiding anything. They'll come right out and say, by the way, when you download our, our application, we're going to gather all of your um, SIM card information, all of your contacts. We give ourselves permission to turn on the microphone, the camera, and we reserve the right to share all of this data that you are giving to us with any third party uh, that we choose. Um, so just on that level, there's this extraordinary challenge to to have people turn that around in some manner. And I think the two, the front door and the back door, as you, as you put it, are actually connected. I, I think that the work that, that we do at Citizen Lab is a good example of what, um, generally speaking, we should encourage people to do more of, which is peel back the layers of the technology that surrounds us. Don't take it for granted. Don't just go through it as if you're sleepwalking start questioning uh, what is at the root of those things that you're dependent upon. And once people start doing that, I think they would start recognizing that, you know, there is a, a, a higher level function behind the games and other applications that we're, that we're using and enjoying or, or using for convenience sake or having fun with um, that actually are, are at the root of some pretty important social and political problems. So, you know, I can't, I can't think of any other way to address it than encouraging people to lift the lid on the technology that surrounds them. But, you know, at the same time, of course, governments, and in particular Europe, has tried to move forward on privacy legislation, for instance. In your view, is that something that will help get at this problem? Is it 
sufficient? You know, what else needs to be done in addition to the steps that you've outlined? I think that's one important step for sure. Um, it's very encouraging to see there is uh, regulation and a law uh, that enables citizens to take back some ownership of the data that that they leave around them as exhaust, really. It's an important first step, but I also think we need to address the problem that we're talking about here in a, in a comprehensive and a holistic fashion that goes beyond just regulations. We have to talk about it in terms of norms, in terms of civic ethics. Um, a, a good portion of, of the issue revolves around people's attitudes and, and, and basic civility that I think also needs to be addressed if we're going to get at some of these these problems. We're really talking about a wholesale change in our way of life, which is not easy. And that's not something that can come from just one, albeit very important, piece of regulation. So I'd like to stay on this thread for just a, a moment, Ron, and, and ask you, you know, Citizen Lab is recognized for doing this kind of forward-leaning work, and you said that uh, it's key for people to peel back the layers of the technology and understand what underlies it. And if there's a kind of wholesale change that's needed, what what else do you think we could be doing, say, apart from the legislative and regulatory dimensions of this in practical terms, in the near to midterm, that would make a meaningful impact on the sort of things that, in your view, need to change? Well, again, here, there's no simple solution. There's no easy alternative. You know, in coming here to, to our, this building, I used Google Maps to find my way here. And like most people, I, you know, I can't get on a plane without an electronic boarding pass. It's difficult to do anything uh, without the technology that surrounds us. But we need alternatives. And I think one of the solutions that I would, I would like to see explored would be alternative social media that aren't oriented around personal data surveillance. So we can have social media without the economic model that underpins it. Uh, it's a matter of, of someone, some group, uh, a network of people, technologists perhaps, uh, designing something and it becoming popular. I don't see any reason why the two have to be linked in that manner. And just thinking back, say, 20 years ago when the nascent challenges that Shanti and others identified in the, the new digital realm were starting to take shape, um, there was a need at that time to have, say, civil society groups that would educate themselves and develop a capacity to help wider publics understand the emerging challenges of, the, let's say, a generation ago. So today, in a way, it sounds like with these emerging challenges, we need a, a new set of voices that are able to put these issues in perspective for the, the wider audiences in society that are using the technology. Is that kind of a, a right way of thinking of this, or is there something else we should be doing that um, would be even more important? I think that's a right way of, of thinking about it. We need to encourage young people especially because, you know, this is a generational shift that we're talking about here encourage young people to to think differently about uh, their relationship to data and information. One of the points I make in the article is perhaps we need to think about data and information in the way that we would like to think about the natural environment. Think about it in terms of conservation. Uh, slow things down. Uh, don't always have your device in front of you. You see people talking about things like this now, um, but of course it's, it's difficult to do takes some internal strength and it takes education. It will take acculturation into this new attitude, but I, I think that would also be helpful if 
if we just put put a pause on on the digital environment that surrounds us get back to some basics uh, that would help us perhaps with a different perspective on why we're so engaged to this technology and i think that gets back to the addiction part of it as well it's it's difficult to admit you're addicted to something and uh you know most people think i'm not you know i'm not fooled by facebook or twitter or google but then they're you know buzzer goes off in their pocket and they're checking their text and you know they don't see that the very basic operant conditioning is actually applied <laughs> to them um so uh again this this comes back to a different attitude towards the social media environment and our relationship to information and data i'm laughing beings. because you could be describing <clears throat> me right now <laughs> yeah and me <laughs> not me no i'm <laughs> um well so a lot of what we've been talking about is particularly relevant to citizens and democracies who may be able to avail themselves of this full suite of civil society approaches and so on. And of course, what we've seen in the last 20 years, you know, we talked about looking at this initially as something where there was a tremendous amount of optimism and there was also um, some degree of concern about what was happening within authoritarian societies. Now you see platforms that have originated within authoritarian societies not merely being dominant within those countries, but actually going global and taking on more and more of a global aspect. I'm curious to get your take on what are the implications of this, because it occurs to me that we could try to apply all of these norms and values uh, and regulation at times that are based firmly within a democratic framework, but this might not necessarily apply to those platforms that are within authoritarian societies or that originate within them and just aren't governed by the same values. Is there a way to deal with this emerging problem? And as you know, this is probably most relevant in the case of China, but it does apply to other places as well. Yeah. So one of the uh, streams of research we have at Citizen Lab is is to focus on reverse engineering Chinese applications in, in the social media universe there. And the reason that we do that is because companies are required under Chinese law to police their users. And usually that's done by having within the application's code keywords that trigger either censorship or surveillance. So the only way that you can discover that is by taking the application apart and looking at it from the inside out. You break the encryption effectively. And we've done this for dozens of applications in China. And some of the researchers say, you know, why are we doing this? What's the point? Because people within China don't really care. They, um, they, the popularity of these applications is enormous. And most people are aware that there is a censorship and surveillance. They, they find ways to get around it, but they're pretty comfortable with it on, on one level. And that, that's kind of discouraging because, you know, if, if the aim of the research is to spotlight what's going on and we're trying to bring it to the public's attention and the public doesn't really care, then that's um, pretty disheartening as researchers. However, I still think in the long run, it's important to do this um, to make people aware and enough people care about it that hopefully they will start to either resist it in some manner or come up with alternatives that, that don't include this. It's daunting to think about the impact that China is having, not only internally, but as you say, many of these applications have millions of users outside of mainland China, and they don't realize they're subjected to the same type of surveillance and censorship. And also, the business model is very attractive to other governments that want to do this same type of uh, authoritarian control by downloading to the private sector. 
And I think um, that to me is is the most frightening part of, of the China model is it's the potential for it to be exported and adopted in other countries around the world. I think one of the conundrums with China in particular is because the entire social media and new digital environment has evolved completely within what used to be called the Great Firewall. Um, the Chinese government has been able to shape it completely. And so it's almost, to my mind, it's almost impossible to get a sense of what Chinese users based in China would prefer absent of that because there just isn't another alternative. And when you're not presented with an alternative to that, then maybe it's difficult to conceive of an environment yeah. in which that wouldn't take place. Um, what is particularly concerning is when these platforms, again, you know, they become more global. And because they're not subject to similar norms around privacy and so on, um, that might then set the standard for other places of the world that are not so authoritarian. And perhaps people, users of these platforms, just come to expect that same level as you've, as you've mentioned. And I guess, you know, in, in some of these settings where, as you suggest, Ron, the, the governments that might be the recipients of this technology or the kind of framework that uh, privileges surveillance and gives uh, even more of a capacity to governments to do this sort of thing, in the absence of um, non-governmental actors who are able to put this in perspective and to help their own societies come to their own conclusion whether this will be a good thing overall or not, uh, that becomes a much more pressing issue globally. And I think this is what we start to see in parts of Asia, we start to see now in parts of sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, where the the kind of Chinese uh, animated version of these technologies are, are really getting some traction. Mm -hmm. And um, here, too, it's not just a question for um, North America or the European Union. This is a question that's hitting all of these societies. Yes. And I think... Um here again, it's important to appreciate how the business model of social media aligns with authoritarian control. So the big data part of surveillance that's at the, it's the economic engine of social media is um, the perfect vehicle for monitoring people's behavior when it comes to government control. And it also makes a lot of money. There's this alignment between business incentives and government control that's very convenient for all parties concerned. So that's why, you know, uh, Jack Ma and other uh, entrepreneurs in China are so excited about, for example, China's social credit system. You know, the, the prospect of gathering up all of this data and monitoring people in just about every manner possible is a huge revenue generator for them. And uh, that's exciting to them to get involved in, in that. Um, it's a win-win. So it, it makes it really challenging to come up with alternatives when you have that momentum behind it. And then there's also um, what I would call the more hard-edged part of the surveillance spectrum. So things like commercial spyware, other forms of um, electronic mass surveillance, facial recognition systems, and so on, that aren't directly part of social media, but uh, come out of the same basic uh, industry and can be used for more lethal consequences. That market is thriving. It's largely unregulated and is highly prone to abuse. And it's one of the, the things that I worry about the most at Citizen Lab actually is the proliferation of this type of technology and, and what we can do to constrain it. And it, it does come back to this question of how incentives can be shaped in a way that would 
keep these sorts of technologies within what we might agree are um, sensible democratic norms. But in an era of globalization, perhaps this is not possible anymore. You know, it's, we're, we're hitting all these negative uh, notes yeah. here. We, we're going to depress people unless we come up with some <laughs> alternatives. But I think it's uh, in part the nature of of looking at uh, things in the way that, you know, at least I'm trained to do. You you, you look for the kind of dark side of things. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't feel that there's hope that we could modify some of this. And so when it comes, for example, to commercial spyware, I think that's one area where you can imagine governments coming up with some regulations, maybe analogous to control over trade and weapons technology or or other areas of industry and trade that are regulated, and enforce it. And um, that's certainly one aim of the research that we're doing is to spotlight the abuse and then put pressure on governments to say, hey, you know, you could do something about this. And if enough people care about the issues, they'll lobby their governments and hopefully the governments will come together and and say, okay, we need to put a stop. So I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, Fundamentally, in the absence of public mobilization, either because of deeper concerns about privacy in one form or another, methods of surveillance that emerge from this technology, it's it's hard to imagine meaningful changes in the absence of more public awareness and then public pressure. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, we, we there is a bit of a backlash going on right now. There are people are talking about, you know, unplugging from Facebook, taking days off social media and so on. When you see that happening, I think it's a, a really ripe opportunity to start mobilizing people and, and, and you know, uh, writing op-eds, doing podcasts like this, educating people about some of the deeper issues that they may not think about. So, you know, while you're irritated at, at the latest scandal about Facebook, have you thought about the fact that, you know, at the heart of this, it's not really to do with Facebook. It's about our complicity in a, an economic model that is deeply entrenched. Have you thought about alternatives? And I, I think that's the way to go about it is to start with a kind of um, uh, proselytization, I suppose, um, basically educating people on what's really going on beneath the surface around. And before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Ron, want to tell us what you're reading? Right yeah, now? I'm excited about this. So um, I thought about it, and I, I am actually uh, rereading a collection of essays by H.G. Wells called The World Brain. So most people know H.G. Wells for his fantastic science fiction. Um, he's probably less well known for being a very prolific uh, nonfiction writer. He wrote uh, many, many uh, interesting tracks on the challenges of technology for liberal democracy. He was particularly concerned about destructive technology, nu- nuclear technology. In fact, in some of his early writings, uh, he uh, forecasted the development of, of nuclear weapons before they were invented. But for him, it was this idea of like where we're, pace of change is accelerating, we're, we're creating technologies that can in turn destroy us, we need to find our way out of this, how are we going to do that? So he came up with this idea of uh, what he called the world brain, which he imagined would be a, a, an encyclopedia that would be accessible to everyone on Earth simultaneously. And uh, he talked a bit about the technology that might support it, um, but basically the idea was, you know, if you're living in China or Peru or Iceland, you'd all have access to the same information. 
And um, he thought that when we when we accomplish this vision, the world's problems would dissolve. We'd all come together in a kind of spectacular unity. So I've always been fascinated by that that collection of essays because we have a world brain uh, now, and what he imagined is basically Wikipedia, and yet the outcome is entirely different. <laughs> Rather than uh, us, you know, all of our problems dissolving and us coming together in a kind of grand unity, it seems that the uh, world brain we've created is actually accelerating division and tribalism and prejudice. So it's a puzzle to me how we got that wrong. Hmm. That is worthy of a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> and Shanti, what are you reading? So I'm reading something that seems like science fiction, but actually isn't. Uh, it's an eye-opening series of short papers published by the NATO Stratcom Center of Excellence, and they focus on issues ranging from robo-trawling to what they term cognitive security challenges. Um, one paper that's particularly illuminating examines the black market for social media manipulation. So it's essentially where buyers and sellers meet to barter likes and clicks and shares. And in so doing, they undermine what uh, we think we know about what's truly trending or popular. And really, it undermines the integrity of the information space. Um, and a key observation from one of those papers is that Russian service providers seem to dominate the social media manipulation market currently. Um, it's something that really, even though I, I try to educate myself on these things and I try to stay abreast of them, it's still really fascinating to see it all laid out like this and to understand, again, this is all something that's happening through what we talked about, the front door as opposed to backdoor manipulation. It's all out there in the open. So taken together, all these papers provide a really fascinating peek into a world few of us know about but clearly need to get up to speed on. And I'm reading uh, the 30 Years After Tiananmen Cluster that appears in the April 2019 issue of the Journal of Democracy. There are five pieces in all. It's really an incredible mix of people who've contributed to this set of articles looking at um, how the world looks at Tiananmen and in some cases how they're not able to look at it. Uh, for example, Glenn Tifford has an article that um, talks about the erasing of the memory of Tiananmen and how uh, this impacts the view within the PRC. Other terrific articles have been contributed by Wan Dong, who was one of the leaders of the th student protest 30 years ago, and Benny Tai, who gives his perspective on uh, the anniversary from uh, Hong Kong. And so I, I encourage our uh, listeners to get to this cluster when they have a moment. Well, that's all that we have time for today, but first wanted to thank you, Ron, for being such a terrific guest. It's thank been you. a really terrific conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, you can read Ron Debert's January 2019 Journal of Democracy article, Three Painful Truths About Social Media. You can find more of his research on the Citizen Lab website. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoy today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust, and research support for this episode by Dean Jackson. I'm Shanta Kalepel with Chris Walker and Ron Deaver. We hope you enjoyed this discussion 
on social media and risks to digital freedom, and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.